Welcome to episode 10 of Super Entertainment Presents the Telgen Crossover Universe on the Grand Geek Knowledge Network. Coming to you from Castle Wolfenstein, hosted by the TVCU crew. Joining me all via Skype is Ivan Shabosky, c- convention panelist, a lover of cheese. And via Skype also is James Boyacek, CEO of 18th Wall Productions, and our returning guest co-host, Chris Nigro. And I am Robert Ivronsky Jr., author of the Horror Crossover Encyclopedia. We are the TVCU crew. The TVCU crew are a team of crossoverists who devote way too much of their time to connecting the dots to official crossovers and Easter eggs in order to demonstrate a shared fictional reality that we call the Telgen Crossover Universe. So, uh, welcome to all who managed to uh, make it to their phones and computers. Uh, That's all of us, isn't it? Yeah. Chris, welcome back. Welcome back Thank to the you. show. Glad I'm, to have you back for this one and, the, and the, of course, the previous one. Cool. I'm glad you're standing. Yeah, we had Chris last week, too. Yeah, we had him last week as well, uh, and, it's, and it's good to have you back for a second week. Uh, I, I like these double headers with you. Um, Thank you, and I reiterate, I'm glad the standards of this of your podcast are so low. You have me back. <laughs> that's that's right. Well, you know the uh, the last time you co-hosted, that's like our second most played episode. So, <laughs> totally glad our viewers have no taste. <laughs> that's right. We have very tasteless viewers. Well, if they're listening, they don't have taste, anyways. <laughs> we just we just keep lowering the bar. <laughs> That's why we have Chris's standards are not the same as the ones that Groucho Marx uses. Right, right. Yeah, I'll join any club that'll have me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, so um, we'll start with our shameless plugging segment. And uh, Chris, since you are our guest, um, uh, how about you begin with uh, your shameless plug? Oh, about my upcoming novels, you mean? Sure. That I'm Okay, with more than glad to... Announce it every chance I get. I am currently pending a novel of a new teen superhero called Centurion. He will deviate quite sharply from the Peter Parker and Clark Kent mold that we're used to. He will not be... Well, he's deep down a good person, but he does not have the caring and loving family that the others had... He's terribly bullied, and he goes off the deep end first. And the question throughout the series that I hope to write will be, can he pull himself away from the chaos he ensued when he went over the deep end and actually become a hero? Sweet. Okay. Ivan, you're up. What do you got? Ah. Well, I don't have any new projects, but I did eat an entire jar of Tostito salsa con queso for lunch. So if I have to run to the bathroom or anything, you'll know why. I'm making my own project. All right. I'm very jealous. <laughs> and I don't have to share the bathroom with you today, dude. I don't think you want to be in there while I'm in there. I ate a or lot of cheese and I lactose intolerant. Or even afterwards for like about an hour. Never. Yeah. You At know least. And light a candle. You know, I stopped at McDonald's on the way here, and their their dollar double cheeseburger is now three dollars. So I, I was very shocked <laughs> by that. Three dollars for a dollar cheeseburger. And, and wow. It might it might have been because it was the Mass Pike, so uh, you know it's like airport prices. Everything goes up when you. No, that's true. Yeah, they know that you yeah. don't have any other choices without getting yeah. off of the toll road. So yeah. yeah. So, so that was my shameless plug for McDonald's overpricing. 
James, how about you? What do you got for us? As I mentioned last week, 18th Wall Productions is still up for multiple awards in the Pulp Arc New Pulp Fiction Awards 2016. So please stop by and vote for who you think best. And hint, we really hope you think we're the best. We're rooting for you. Next week, we're also interviewing Nicole Petit. Now is the perfect time to pick up her novel, The Dragon Lord's Secretary, available now in print and in digital from both Amazon and 18th Wall Productions. Consider it purchased. Yeah. Cool. All right. um, For my shameless plug, I want to talk about my my other book. (laughs) Every... Everybody knows the horror crossover encyclopedia because that's how I promote myself. But but I did write another book called Television Crossover and like, uh, Television Crossover Universe World and Mythology Volume One. Um, so I wanted to talk about that just a little bit. It's on sale on Amazon in both paperback and and in um, ebook format. Um, what's what's cool about it? It's for one thing, it's a smaller book than the horror crossover encyclopedia and a less expensive book. Um, it, it, it takes a little bit different format. It, uh, it, it, it's more true to the television crossover universe's, um, chronology, uh, format. And it goes more into wild theories than the horror crossover encyclopedia allows. Um, it has three smaller chronologies in it instead of covering one big thing. Um, the first, first of the, the three, um, is called Flintstones Forever, the Bedrock Anomaly. Um, it basically tells the story about how how a modern Stone Age family's descendants um, migrated from the Lunaverse to the television crossover universe and how their descendants um, went on to um, go on for generations um, exhibiting Toon-type traits while living in a in a, um, a more solid world of the television crossover universe. It ties together... Uh, the Flintstones with the Three Stooges, Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, um, and a lot of the modern cartoons like Simpsons, South Park, Family Guy. Um, it's meant to be taken lightheartedly um, because there is a lot of wild theories um, uh, that I don't usually employ when, I, when I'm doing my crossovers. Um, um, so it should be taken a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Um, uh, the second one is the Doctor Who universe uh, is the second chronology in there, and um, that's more um, more crossoverish and less theory. Uh, but it basically takes the premise that if Doctor Who was in its own universe, what connects to Doctor Who to create that universe? And then the third chronology is another another um, um, don't take it too seriously. Uh, look at what if all the um, on-screen DC Comics adaptations um, were in the same universe, the t- same timeline? Um, and then it wraps it up by saying, and then what if it wasn't? And shows shows them all existing in their own universes and in a more tighter um, sense. Um, so it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a fun read. Um, some of it is um, taken from the website, and then a lot of new material was added to it. Um, so it's a fun read, and I'm currently working on Worlds of Mythology 2, which takes a, a similar look at Marvel Comics um, and how it's connected to the television crossover universe. Um, and then I'm also looking at the Mirror Universe concept, that opposite evil world um, 
and how that trope has been played out in different um, film and television. And uh, then I'm looking at um, theology and fairy tales and folklore for, for my final two chronologies in that. Um, so you should. And I'll just throw out that even though I haven't reviewed it because it would probably look like conflict of interest, it's an excellent book and you should definitely pick it up. Thank you. Thank you. And, I'll tell and, you, I'll and I also, also think people should pick it up. Yes, do that. <laughs> but you. does Chris think people should pick it up? <laughs> if it's not too heavy, yes. And I would say, other than that, most death, because where else would you find theories like that that really force the human mind to stretch and think? Thank you. Mm. And, and I will say, in. Um, World of Mythology 1, I, I threw in a bonus feature that was a, a fictional biography of one of my characters that I created when I was six years old, um, just so that he could be published. Um, <laughs> nice. And, um, but, but in the second book, but the, my bonus will actually be my, my first published fiction in over 20 years, um, a Lovecraftian, of course, with crossovers, um, story. Um, that I've been working on for for some time, um, and I've been editing it and making changes to it, and just trying to. Uh, so uh, I'm pretty excited about that. But since I don't know if people are going to like it or not, I'm throwing it in as a bonus. <laughs> I've been excited about this story since I first heard about it. And, I can't uh, wait. Yeah, and if people uh, and if I get good feedback, you know, I'll probably put out more fiction. And if I get bad feedback. I will stick to the <laughs> research of crossovers <laughs> and just test that. Um, so that's my shameless plug. Um, so we're going to go to commercial. And when we come back, um, Matthew Denyon is uh, Facebooking me that he is ready, ready, ready. So uh, we'll have him on as soon as we get back from commercial. And we are back. Our guest tonight is Matthew Denyon. Matthew is an author who has written numerous novels as well as short stories for G-Fan and Tales of the Shadowmen. Uh, so welcome to the show, Matthew. Thank you for having me, guys. Okay. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off all, all, of, all of the way we, we do it here is we kind of all jump in and ask questions. And uh, um, so we hit you from all sides. No problem. Uh, Fire away. Yeah, so, but I want to start off. Um, so two of your stories that I referenced in my horror crossover encyclopedia uh, were Faces of Fear from Tales of the Shadowman, Volume 7, Femme Fatales, and yes. Sherlock Holmes and the Giant Rat of Sumatra from G-Fan number 104. Oh, yeah. Now in, yeah, two of my favorites. Now, in Faces of Fear, if I'm correct, you have Judex facing off against Batman's foe, the Scarecrow, and yes. Freddy Krueger. Now, yes. how did you come about this very cool story concept? Well, um, the way I came about it was um, before I was writing for Tales of Shadowman, I was doing some work for uh, Shadow Sanctum website, mm -hmm. um, which is uh, a website dedicated to the pulp radio character, The Shadow. So I had originally written the story um, kind of for them, and basically uh, what had occurred there was The Shadow was in place of um, Judex, and um, I used a few other characters as opposed to uh, the people from Eyes Without a Face. Um, so anyway, when the story was done, I'd kind of come across Tales of the Shadow Man and thought, you know, I think that this story would fit well into that universe. So I submitted it to him, and uh, Jean-Marc said he liked the idea. He just wanted to replace a few characters um, 
with French characters because right. that's what they do. Is um, Chris knows the tales of the Shadow Men, right. so I was like, sure. Um, it just took a little bit of like uh, changing around, and um, we put Judex in for the Shadow, and there it was. Um, as far as the story itself, I really wanted to do um, even with the original kind of a thing where you weren't sure if what had occurred was an effect from the Scarecrow's fear gas or if it was Freddy Krueger or some combination of the both. So I tried to kind of leave it open for the reader to put their own spin on it there. Nice. So in uh, Sherlock Holmes and the Giant Rat of Sumatra, Sherlock Holmes teams up with the Invisible Man in your take on the Untold Giant Rat of Sumatra adventure. Uh, So what was your inspiration behind this unusual adventure? Oh, always been a huge fan of Sherlock Holmes for one. So um, just wanted to do a Sherlock Holmes story. And uh, to do one for G-Fan, um, particularly like a kaiju story, seemed like a good way to go about it. So um, the giant rat in this case, um, because we're not allowed to use Toho characters for G-Fan, mm. is very loosely tied into the film Latitude Zero, if you guys are familiar with that. Right. Uh, so it seemed like a, a neat way to go about things. We kind of backtracked it a little bit. And um, as I was writing the story, uh, the rat's a good protagonist, but I felt like I needed, um, you know, somebody else who was kind of pulling the strings and keeping Holmes on his toes. So um, the Invisible Man's always been a great character. Um, in particular, I'm a huge fan of the uh, over universal black and white one uh, right. with Claude Rains. So um, just wanted to use that character, and it seemed like a good way to go about doing it. So... Um, Anytime you can put Sherlock Holmes and Kaiju together, you know, I feel like it's a good mix. <laughs> that actually leads into my next question, which was, uh, uh, you know, connecting to connecting that to Latitude Zero and um, Holmes and Griffin with Kaiju. Um, are Japanese monster movies one of your passions? Oh, absolutely. Been a huge fan ever since I was a kid right up through today. Um, you know, Godzilla, Gamera, Daimaji, and any kind of Kaiju I can get my hands on, I'm want to watch it, read it, whatever I can do. All right. And uh, that last question I already knew the answer to, but I just wanted to get you to start talking about kaiju. Sure. (laughs) You've actually written several kaiju novels, uh, and we hang out in some of the same fan groups for kaiju online. Yes. Um, So can you talk a bit on some of your novels, such as uh, Polo Yeti, Atomic Rex, etc.? Sure. Um, uh, The first novel I did was uh, Chimera, Scourge of the Gods, um, which itself is kind of like a crossover novel, which worked out well. And um, the way that I had gotten started doing those was through GFAN, where, um, just to backtrack a little bit of that, it's cool. Um, you guys know I'm currently doing the GFANTIS Versus series for GFAN? No. Where? No, please expand on that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, the idea started um, when I was reading Jeremy Robinson's Project Nemesis book series. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the back of one of his books... He had like a written for people to send in artwork of his kaiju nemesis, and I can't draw to save my life, but I thought I can write a story. So uh, I wrote to Jeremy and I said, "Hey, how would you feel about if I was to do a story in G Fan where Nemesis takes on G Fantis? It'd be like free advertising for you, and it'd be cool for the magazine." So he thought it was a great idea. So did that story and. Um, it got like really good reaction from the fans of G Fan, so I reached out to a few other authors who had written kaiju books, and um, all but one got back to me saying, "Yeah, we'd love you to do this." One of them was um, K. H. Kohler, who wrote the kaiju novel uh, Raiju, a kaiju hunter. And um, when I did the crossovers Raiju, she had mentioned that her publishing company, Severed Press, was looking for some kaiju novels. 
I had actually never really thought about giving a novel a shot, but um, you know, I figure if opportunity knocks, I might as well take it, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, kind of put on the spot. I was like, all right, what am I going to do? Um, I've always been a big fan of different forms of mythology. So, uh, the first novel I did was uh, Chimera. And in this case, um, the premise of the story was that three different um, sects of gods, in this case it was the Asgardians, the Olympians, and the Mesopotamian gods, view Earth sort of as under their protection, but not necessarily humanity. So, Mm -hmm. as they saw humanity destroying the world, each sect utilized something from their mythology to wipe out humans, but to leave the rest of the world intact. The humans had responded with... um, a creature called Chimera, who was a combination of a gorilla, a whale, a sperm whale specifically, and a lion. Um, and the twist I put on the story was I needed something that I could write a lot about for my first novel. So I uh, utilized uh, basically what I do for my job. I work as a teacher of students with autism. And uh, I won't get too technical about it, but we use what's known as applied behavior analysis to train our students. Um, it's the same process used for anything like you might see a lion tamer utilize it where like he gives a lion a request and then the lion does it and he gets a reward uh so the reason i went that way is because i put in there that zeus and thor and some of the other gods could control emps uh, so anyway the main character was a teacher loosely based on myself a student with autism who utilized these methods to train chimera and then they went about fighting off all these different sects of gods culminating in a fight with thor um which is really neat to do but i had to be very specific about making sure it bore no resemblance to the Marvel Universe right. store, obviously. Yeah. Um, following that, um, I really had no plans to do anything else, but um, the reaction to Chimera was good, and Severed Press asked me for something else. Uh, so I came up with the idea to do Operation Rock, um, like ROC Rock for mythology, mm-hmm. um, because I want to do a Rodan-type story. I feel like there's not enough Rodan-type stuff out there. Uh, so I did Operation Rock, and basically the premise for that was we had um, terrorists capture the world's cryptids, um, Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, and other such things. Basically, came up with that idea from there being so many, like, chasing Bigfoot shows on TV. You know, you can't turn it all without seeing a bunch of rednecks running around in woods looking for Bigfoot. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, seemed like a fun thing to do. So uh, we had the terrorists size up the cryptids and um, took a little bit kind of from Pacific Rim in that and where um, pilots sink with the rocks. Mm. Um, in this case, too, I took it back to what I know with teaching and incorporated brain-based learning into um, the process. And just very quickly, um, that basically states if you use a part of your brain, you get stronger, sort of like your, your muscles would if you work out. And um, the people who were chosen to sink with these rocks were done so because they were pilots. So the original concept was if they're good pilots, they'll be able to handle these giant birds well. Um, and the birds also have all kinds of cybernetic enhancements and such. Um, but the core of the story was the people had to develop their interpersonal relationships in order to better sync with the rocks. So they had the ability to have better relationships with people, and they could have better relationships with their rocks. And for some pilots, it worked out, and for some, it didn't. Um, so uh, that story seemed to go pretty good. I'm uh, actually going to make a kind of an announcement here for this next story is uh, for Atomic Rex. Have any mm-hmm. of you guys seen that one yet? That's been my bestseller. Yes. I've read it and enjoyed it like you cannot believe. <laughs> okay. And- it basically proved that you can take pastiches. Am I pronouncing that word right, Ivan? Pastiche. Pastiche. Look how close I pastiche. was. <laughs> you know, we're Americans. We can mispronounce any word any way we want to. <laughs> That's <Absolutely>. right. <laughs> well, pastiche, that novel, Atomic Rex, proved pastiches can be done in such a way that they seem fresh and original. 
we had a kaiju based on the Hulk, Ogre, or I should say, but in, instead of coming off as just, how do you put it, derivative, it comes off as uniquely his own entity. We're talking about a bigger version of the Hulk. Yes. Yes, as the as our British friends would say, kicks arse like you cannot believe. <laughs> yeah. Atomic you don't have any British friends. I have Dave Brzezinski. Does that count? But anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> but that, that was a fantastic novel because it, it also, and one thing I like about the novel, the two main human protagonists, Chris and Kate, they were very well developed, and I must say I cared about them within just a couple of pages of each of them. They were very they were very resourceful and brave in their own ways. Chris was flying the steel samurai, the last of the Jaeger of that world. If I or set if I could call it that, if I could steal from Pacific Rim. Yeah. Kate was actually a captive of Ogre. This monster was ultra creepy as well as ultra powerful. He would capture women and keep them as something akin to pets. Yes, yes. And the the battles between these monsters were not only fantastic, but basically the harrowing situations that Chris and Kate went through, finally uniting finding love in a realistic way, I must put it, trying to protect basically the last surviving segment of humanity, which was basically just a post-apocalyptic town. And this was a total kaiju apocalypse. Yes. Yep. The um, the idea there was a couple. I wanted to do, um, there's plenty of zombie apocalypse movie stories out there, but I wanted to do one where kaiju had basically wiped out humanity. I didn't feel like that really been done yet. And um, the other thing I wanted to do was basically see my own Godzilla and Atomic Rex take on every other monster that I wanted to see him take on that he never will. So, you know, for instance, there was the Tortoise character is kind of like a Gamera homage. Obviously, you said Ogre is like a nod to the Hulk. Um, I had a colony of giant ants sort of like from them. Mm. And then it was basically just trying to weave a story around that. Um, and uh, I really... Was- Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Amoebus was also awesome. A, a nod to the blob that was way cool. Yes, yes. Uh, Amoebus to the blob. Uh, I tried to go for like a mix of um, Angoris and um, the Beast and 20,000 Fathoms for the Demetrosaurus character. And um, the Yokozuna character was um, sort of like a nod to uh, the Colossal Man. But also I was a big fan of wrestling in the 90s, so I remember like the actual wrestler Yokozuna. So it seemed like kind of a neat way to you know, put him in there. Um, but anyway, the, the novel did great, and uh, people responded well to it. And um, I can tell you guys uh, now, it's still in early works, but I was contacted by um, a representative at Universal Studios, and they're interested in turning Atomic Rex into a film. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Two words, woo and who. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that so, is awesome. um, the, the rough plan, um, I'm going to speak to the guy next week and catch up with him, is... Um, it might be like a video-on-demand type of film, probably, like mm-hmm. straight-to-DVD. Uh, I did. They did say a potential limited theatrical release. So um, with my contacts, uh, contacts at GFAN, they do a G-Fest every year, which is like um, a large kaiju type of convention in Chicago akin to like Wizard World. And um, they've, uh, GFAN's agreed to have a premiere there, and so has a representative. 
So if we can get it all done by 2017, it'll premiere there, and then uh, hopefully be out there on the market for everybody to check out. Nice. I need to attend. I totally need to attend, and I must say, after reading Atomic Rex, I would think that Matt could not outdo himself, yet he did. Oh, thank you. Yeah, um, Pulling Yeti was a fun follow-up, and um, that, again, I wanted to do a King Kong-type story. So, um, you know, try to take the Yeti and put it in a different setting with um, prehistoric beasts instead of Yeti, um, or instead of Kong. Sorry, you guys still there? It looks like I lost oh, somebody. Oh, yeah. Um, actually, actually, we lost one of our co-hosts. Okay. <laughs> okay, no problem. So, so that's what that noise Sorry is. Sorry about that. I'm back. Hey, he's back. <laughs> okay, very good. Um, so thanks. I'm glad you liked Yeti. Um, it was another case of, <clears throat> excuse me, Severed Press saying, yeah, we want another book. So I was like, okay, let me see what I can do. So um, pitched Polar Yeti to them. They really liked that idea. Um, and I tried the uh, to incorporate characters there, too, that people could relate to. So I, I looked back to, like, old pulp magazines and tried to write it kind of in that context and with that kind of pace to it. So... Um, so far, the reaction to Polar Yeti's been good. I did leave a few open windows in Polar Yeti mm. to connect it to Atomic Rex, so sort of like a prequel, um, in case later we want to do something else with um, Atomic Rex. So um, I have been offered to do a sequel for Atomic Rex, too, so that's in the works. I haven't quite decided if it's going to be one where we bring in Yeti, and um, one of the neat things about that was they never really explained in King Kong versus Godzilla how Godzilla, or King Kong rather, got sized up to Godzilla's size. Right. But by allowing, um, in Atomic Rex, one of the sub-themes is that normal creatures are turned into kaiju by the ambient radiation that these, what I call true kaiju, like Atomic Rex and Amiibos and Ogre are giving off. So I left the door open for... Um, uh, you know, the radiation kind of get down to where Yeti is and transform Yeti into a larger creature. I haven't quite decided that's what we're going to do yet or not. I also purposely gave one of the secondary characters the same last name as Kate, as like maybe she's Kate's aunt or mother or something. I haven't quite decided on that yet. So I'll, I'll tell you, if, if, you can, if you can make official an explanation for King Kong versus Godzilla with King Kong's size change, I, I will be indebted. <laughs> for, for my horror crossover encyclopedia <laughs> volume just, two. <laughs> I was just about to, to suggest to you, Matt, before you brought this up, bring Atomic Rex and the Yeti together in a cataclysmic battle. That's the the rough plan. So um, you know, hopefully that's something people want to see. Because I'm kind of toying around with that idea for uh, the Atomic Rex sequel, where um, well, we'll see the Yeti and Atomic Rex get together. I'm just working on. Um, how to expand the story to make sense to either right. get Atomic Rex to Antarctica or the Yeti to uh, North America or somewhere else. Um, but the, the, the definite plan is to see Polar Yeti take on Atomic Rex down the line at some point. Wow. Cool. That's well, awesome. We had, we had Yetrigar get big enough to fight Godzilla back in Marvel's Godzilla series, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of the other things I thought would be cool if we could uh, kind of do that because I... That was one of the better issues of that series, I felt like. Uh, but I wanted to see more of Yetrigar, and we just didn't. So, you know, now we've got Polar Yeti, and we've got Atomic Rex. So, you know, can make this thing happen, right? That's what I saw. I also saw a little of uh, Mighty Peking Man in Yeti, too. Yes, absolutely. I'm a big fan of that. And um, in terms of appearance and the way he acts, um, Yukon, the name of the Yeti in Polar Yeti, is probably more akin to the Peking Man than he is to Kong, even. 
um, being the Peking man, sort of like uh, you know a Bigfoot Yeti type creature, as opposed to more of a gorilla. Hominid rather than anthropoid. I thought I thought that was more interesting too because it could account for his more human like reactions and. The Yeti definitely has those. There's definitely, how do I put it, uh, should I say a, a sweet side to him despite his uh, obvious darkness? Yes, yeah. One thing I tried to go for in that is, um, you know, I'm not really like a, a, a dark person, like a Frank Miller or somebody, but a lot of my novels I feel come off that way. So I wanted to try to put like a nice touch into it. Mm. So um, by referring to Yeti as a, as a hominid and having some human-like characteristics, um, I was able to do that because I didn't really see Yukon as necessarily like a monster or a villain, just sort of, um, you know, uh, a human-like person who had lost his family and was trying to replace it, um, which had occurred to him in that story, where he was sort of like the alpha male of a group of other yetis, and he was overthrown for that position, um, which, based on the little research I did, does happen to gorillas and chimpanzees and other social primates like that where they'll have like an alpha male who can be overthrown and he basically has to leave and go off on his own um so in this case uh the yeti was looking for somebody to replace that and he found humans to do it um excuse me for one second can you tell your mom <laughs> sorry i have a two-year-old and a six-year-old no, no worries no worries <laughs> wanting to join the convo <laughs> yeah. um so that's where um kind of wanted to put some feeling it to Yeti for, and I don't know where I saw this at, but I, I saw a neat quote one time that it said, nobody cries for Jaws when Jaws dies, but people cry for Kong when Kong dies. So right. I wanted to go for that um, you know, type of feeling where you felt some sympathy for Yukon, and um, can I throw out a spoiler for the end of the book, because there's like another neat crossover thing I wanted to mention about it. It's, it's your books. If you want to spoil, go ahead. Well, um... <laughs> I don't know if you guys are aware of this or not, but in um, with the 76 King Kong, apparently one of the ideas for a sequel that De Laurentiis had was to do King Kong versus Orca, one of his other films. Oh. And um, that, that kind of intrigued me because I kept thinking, how on earth would they ever possibly right. pull that off in terms of story or in terms of uh, you know shooting, especially in the 70s? So... The end of Polar Yeti has Yukon facing off kind of with a um, pod of orcas um, in that it would, mm. I set it up where it made sense. But um, I thought it was kind of like a neat way to sneak in another <laughs> uh, crossover monster battle I always was kind of intrigued by and thought, how can I make this work if I really want yeah. to do this? So um, it took a little bit of doing, but I think it came off okay. If uh, Chris, you've read the book. Do you think it came off okay? I believe it came off more than okay. In fact, I think you put a good amount of basically sympathy in all your characters, not not just uh, the Yeti, um, but also Atomic Rex. I mean, he was complete animalistic fury, but he had a degree of nobility and that he never gave up. He was just like he, he never gave up. He fought to the end, and I guess he had what some people could call relentless courage. Never stopped. Yeah. Yeah, like, um, one to go for that, make him Godzilla-like. So, yeah, he, he never backs down in that respect. I also tried to throw a few things in there in that um, I've always thought the difference between a kaiju and um, sort of like a monster and loose is that the kaiju was able to think and react and had some degree of intelligence. So I threw a few things in there, like there's a scene where um, 
Atomic Rex takes on like a giant Megalodon type shark. But prior to that, he senses that a uh, whale had entered his territory, but because the whale's not a threat, he basically lets the whale go about its way. Mm. Yes, not a not not a wanton killer. He basically kills for a purpose. For I should say, for territory. He wants his own yes. area. Yes, own part of the world. If you're a threat to it, clearly he perceives humanity as a threat because they were the alpha life form before the kaiju came along. Absolutely, this is why um, he would take on any humans that were in his path, any other large mutants that crossed his path. Um, so, so that worked out well. And then for the sequel, I'm just trying to think about where to send Atomic Rex next. Because um, kind of left it like I do all my books, like open if Atomic Rex had made it or not. But since he did so well, he definitely survived that encounter. So, <laughs> again, a little bit of a spoiler. Well, he hasn't fought Batman yet, right? Everybody <laughs> has to fight Batman eventually. You know, it's funny you should say that. Because just, um, I, I guess I was texting with Robert earlier today. I... Um, had posted a few different forums that there was an idea to do a, a movie of Godzilla versus Batman roughly in the 60s. So, um, Oh, I remember. Yeah. So, yeah, word version. <laughs> I um, spoke to a good friend of mine uh, who does some artwork for me. His name is John Opal. So, um, just today we finished a, um, it's going to be more of a novella about a, we're calling it The Kaiju and the Crime Fighter, in which um, it's a, uh, basically going to be like, what would Batman do if Godzilla attacked Gotham City? Mm. Um, so in this instance, we're calling the kaiju uh, Gargantosaurus. Mm-hmm. Um, very Godzilla-like. I couldn't use Atomic Rex, unfortunately, because of uh, my ties with Severed Press on that. And um, we made a crime fighter Batman-like called Raptor. So mm. um, I just finished a rough draft today, but I think it came across pretty good. Um, where Batman, or in this case Raptor, but a Batman-like character, is faced with something that he can't beat, which... You know, if, if, I'm sure you guys use Batman fans too. Yeah, he he yeah. rarely comes across like he's kicked Superman's butt a couple times. You know, so um, there's more study. I just assumed that he'd have a a can of uh, Raptor Kaiju repellent spray in his utility belt, <laughs> <stuff>, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, he doesn't. Although I did play around with the idea of doing this as more of a camp story, but um, I think it, people would respond better. To uh, you know, like a Dark Knight type of character. Although I, I am a fan oh, yeah. of this series because it's funny. <laughs> Speaking of which, did I see Burt Ward instead of Adam West? I so yes. apologize to everyone, including my cousin Gene, a big Batman fan. And secondly, Matt, I think this is a fantastic idea because your story where you crossed over Sherlock Holmes and the Invisible Man with much of the mythos of Latitude Zero, you proved basically that you could marry. You could marry pulp adventure characters with kaiju. I'm sure you could do the same thing with superheroes who are descendants of the pulp pulp fiction hero. Yeah, yeah, I think it went pretty well. Um, and basically the story's uh, written where I'm switching perspectives from the, the raptor character to the gargantosaurus character. Mm. So you get like a little bit of both, and I think that helps out with the flow. So it's not like um, you're only getting the perspective of the hero, you know, you're getting sort of what the monster is, is going through as well. So, um, and I, I wrote that sort of like Atomic Rex, where not, the monster's not thinking out thought bubbles, you know, but um, in the, all the chapters I did in Atomic Rex, where you're basically going with Atomic Rex through, I try to take it in that same type of vein. Right. So just give us one little hint there, Matt. Will we possibly get to see a Raptor jet or an equivalent thereof? 
You will get to see a drone that he's able to control through a visor that he wears over his head that streams all of his computer stuff that he needs. How's that? Much safer and more logical than the Batplane where the Dark Knight actually sits in there himself. Exactly, that's what I thought. Like, wouldn't a drone make much more sense? So if he gets knocked out of the sky, you don't crash? Oh, he has to overuse that eject button, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, so um, he does have a drone that um, he's able to utilize. And um, also, interestingly, because it's a drone, he can be doing one thing while the drone's doing another, um, which I thought was a neat step away from Batman, too. So... I'm already excited. I want to read this thing now. I, I hate to be a oh, yeah. Hurry up, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, it should be on Amazon hopefully in about two to three weeks. I'm just uh, editing it. And um, check out my friend John Opal at opalgallery.com. He does amazing artwork. He's going to be doing the cover for it. So um, as soon as that's done, we'll have it out there, and I'll, I'll email all you guys. Awesome. I'll be counting the minutes. This is pretty fantastic. I mean, keep up the good work there, Matt, because it's inspiring me. I want to delve into into Daikaiju uh, literature that I'm going to take a stab and call it soon as well. And you've been a big inspiration, I'll tell you that much. Oh, thanks, Chris. I'm, as you know, a huge fan of your work. Um, I'm sure you guys have all read Chris's stuff on Tales of the Shadow Man. I don't miss a single one of his stories. Um, particularly love the feel of facts and... Um, werewolf of paris story i thought was tremendous chris i Uh, thank you for that and if i could put a little a relevant plug i am talking with um jean marc about getting a feel effects novel completed that'd be great i think it's nice great why Um, did you mention that in the plug section of the show come on man get it together sorry i stole the thunder there i did a total four on you Um, well chris if you're interested in another quick plug i'm had a few people email me um, with ideas for Kaiju stories, and uh, thinking of John Mark, I thought John Mark takes all these stories we send him and does the anthologies. If people keep sending me stories, maybe I'll see about putting a Kaiju anthology together. So that's um, one thing I'm in the works after I get this story done. If you're interested, please let me know, man. I'd love to have something from you in there. I totally will. I'll be in touch. Count on it. All right, fantastic. I'm ever the opportunist. <laughs> yeah, it's when opportunity knocks, right, my friend? Indeed. And Matt, speaking. Oops, sorry. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Chris. I was simply going to make a bad comment that when opportunity knocks, I'm the first to answer the door. Right. So, so uh, Matt, speaking of Black Coat Press, um, aren't you writing a novel for them? Yeah, it's um, in the very early stages. Um, I had gotten in touch with uh, JM about wanting to do a novel that takes place over several decades. Um, so we're looking at using the Colonel character from the Black Coats. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an interesting character in that um, uh, the Black Coats are this uh, criminal organization, and um, they exist throughout different periods of time. But this character, the Colonel, is always there. He's like their leader. Um, it's unknown whether he's immortal or whether he's a different person who takes up the guy, sort of like Lee Falk's Phantom. Mm. Um, oh, Bazo Corona. Yes, thank you. And uh, I always want to say Bozo. I know it's not right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, this can't call a guy a clown and send him out there as his criminal mastermind. Um, so thanks for that, Chris. But yeah, the um, the rough idea for the story I pitched to JM is um, we're going to include several different characters 
we have the back end set where it's going to have, an, I'm going to mispronounce this too, but uh, Chris, you might be able to help me, the Nyctalope character. Um, I, I think you're I think you're accurate on that. It's it's, it's derived from Nyctalopia, the medical condition. So I think you're on you're on you're spot on. Okay, Nyctalope um, is how I've always said it. Me too. All right, good. So we're all on the same page <laughs> for that. Um, that character is going to take. Um, it's going to be a five part novel, and that character is going to fill in the the back part of the novel since he seems to be extremely long lived as well. Um, the third part of the novel is going to include both Sherlock Holmes and Eric, the Phantom of the Opera. Mm-hmm. And um, in that part, we want to do a um, hero, anti-hero type of conflict in the middle of um, the story with Bozo Corona. Or Bozo, sorry. <laughs> See how I go again. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, backtracking a little bit more, There's it's those first two characters we're still playing around with um pretty sure the count of monte cristo might be in there just because it's a great novel Mm -hmm. and um the other character that we've gone back and forth with a little bit um is we might be using the character of arthur gordon pym from um the the narrative of yes oh oh sorry thanks so um, it's just kind of – it's a lot of research on my part, like doing all the, the back reading because um, I always try anyway not to – if I'm using characters already are established to screw up their backstories or their continuity. Um, and JM, Chris, as you know, is very big on not screwing up, you know, was kind of been established by the creators. So tying that all together is taking me a little bit of time. And then as more kaiju projects come up, I'm like, all right, got to get them done first and work on the novel. But it's uh, – it's coming along as far as piecing it together as far as an outline goes. So hopefully I'm looking at the end of next year to get that one out. I enjoyed yes. pitting the Colonel up against Phantom of the Opera, Eric, in one of my stories. Yeah, another great one you did. Yes. Thank you, and I look forward to see how you will put the two of them together. I'm totally looking forward to that. Well, my rough spin, this the idea came from going all the way back to um, – when I was working for that Shadow website, um, I had done a story that took place over time with Ra's al Ghul taking on Zorro, the Shadow, and Batman mm. in various time frames. And um, I'd called the story Lineage and basically like had laid out traces um, in the story about how Zorro and the Shadow influenced Bruce become Batman just in a way that those characters influenced Bob Kane and Bill Finger into making Batman. So... Um, that was kind of fun. Obviously, we can't use those characters for a uh, a published novel, but there were some nice characters we could switch in. Like um, the the Nyctalope, I actually think is is as cool as Batman. As I went back and read his original novels, so um, that's always fun. And uh, one thing that I wanted to do with the Sherlock Holmes and um, Phantom of the Opera is to kind of make um, not as active in terms of physical conflict, but a Daredevil Punisher type of um, spot between the two where, like, you know, Holmes is kind of always the upfront do things a certain way type of guy, and the Phantom, well, he might be, like, a hero in the story. He doesn't mind cutting corners, right, Chris? Like, you know, you've written great stories with him being, like, the guy who's, you know, almost a villain himself, but still on the side of the angels, so to speak. He seems to think, he basically seems to think of himself as a per- classic persecuted individual. He would have been a good guy if not for a very bad deck of cards he was handed, and in his eyes, that justifies him being doing bad things. I should say. Yes. So, um, 
So that's where we're going with that story. And we're kind of going to make it a MacGuffin where there's uh, something that the colonel's after throughout the story, uh, which our heroes will constantly be coming into conflict with him with. Cool. I'm totally looking forward to that one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that sounds great. Yeah, that all sounds sounds awesome, and you, you've you've uh, you gave us a lot of surprises today with with yeah. with, with stuff came out, a lot of announcements. You heard it here first, folks. Yeah, um, so oh, yeah. that's cool to plug everything like that. Just that no, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, you saw me and meet Matt. You or I should say, you heard me and Matt meet personally for the first time here. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah so I've wanted to do for a long time. Uh, I'm always writing on the Shadowman. For him, what a big fan I am of Chris and his work. So, thank you for the plugs. Anytime, much appreciated. Yeah, I was looking forward to getting you two together. <laughs> I had a feeling it would almost work out. as much as I'm looking forward to fake Batman versus fake Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like that title. Maybe I'll put that in parentheses: <laughs> fake Batman versus fake Godzilla. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, yes, but I have fake Batman copyrighted now, so no trademark okay. infringement, okay? <laughs> I'm fake Batman. <laughs> it's a good tagline. I'm trying to stay avoid all this, but I can't. So, so uh, Matt, before we wrap up, um, yeah. is, are there any other new projects um, or current things that are out that you want to plug that we haven't covered? Um. Well, I, I told you briefly about the G-Fantas Versus series for uh, G-Fan. Uh, Chris, you're following that a little bit, right? Um, I certainly do. Um, in fact, make sure, Matt, to mention G-Fan number 111. Yeah, G-Fan 111 uh, just came out at shipping this week. Um, my good friend Tim Price, who wrote the novel Big in Japan, his characters are featured in there. And um, I mentioned, like, we did Nemesis and, and we did uh, Cage, Kohler's Raiju. We did... Um, Todd Tennant and Mike Bogues, King Komodo. And uh, all I really want to do with that series is um, highlight other kaiju authors who are out there and uh, hopefully use GFIN as a conduit to draw people to these great authors that are out there. Because, um, you know, Toho, and, and rightfully so, is very guarded about not letting Godzilla be used for anything other than what they use him for. Um, GFIN was doing a lot of Godzilla stories and that got shut down. Um, but... You know, it doesn't always have to be Godzilla. There's plenty of other cool things out there. So um, that series is running through G-Fan, in which uh, G-Fantis is G-Fan's mascot monster. So we're able to use him without any problems. And um, we're looking at him as kind of multidimensional, so I'm not messing up with mm. the, um, you know, trying to put all these kaiju into one universe. It'll just be too much without people noticing. Um, we're also going to do a story with... Uh, Chris Martinez's Doragon from his comic book Night of the Fire Beast. Um, very cool. Check it out. It's certainly a different take on giant monsters in that his comic is based on found footage of a movie, not of found footage of kaiju. So he has kaiju in it, but you can actually see like that there's strings holding up the kaiju's tail and stuff like that. It's a man in a suit. Mm. Um so it's kind of a, a neat, lighter take, again, as opposed to doing everything dark. So that'll be coming up as well. And uh, G-Fantis in um, G-Fan 112 and 113 will be taking on Chimera from my novels, as well as The Rocks from Operation Rock. And then we're going to end the series with G-Fantis taking on uh, both Atomic Rex and Keith Foster's Kadoja from his comic book Kadoja. Um, so a lot of fun with that. 
and it's got a very good response. People seem to like it a lot. So, oh, I have two questions for you, Matt. Is there any sure. chance? Okay, is there any chance part of your inspiration for the Silver Samurai was none other than Red Ronin from Marvel's Godzilla? Yes, yes, for uh, the Steel Samurai character. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, Red Ronin, um, obviously Pacific Rim. Um, you know, I was a big Power Rangers fan in the 90s as a kid. So, <laughs> you know, even going back to them um, being the inspiration for that type of character. And, um, yeah, the Red Ronin, Steel Samurai, obvious nod there. So, And well, that is very cool. And second question, if we get a series maybe of movies from you, I'm optimistic, a series of Daikaiju Aiga from you, any chance you may one day get J.D. Lees to loan you G-Fantas for an appearance in one of those movies? Yes, I actually just talked to JD about that the other day, so um, that's a definite possibility. The contract that um, Universal currently has is they want to do Atomic Rex first, but they picked up options for all four of my novels. So um, that's in the works, and uh, I have to talk to the guy um, because there was a chance HBO might want to purchase it from Universal, and look, I really have no idea how movies work mm-hmm. so i'm just kind of going by what he says and do a game of thrones type series with it oh um so if that's the case i really need to start churning out some more atomic rack stuff very quickly um so we don't get through season one and then season two is like well what have you got yeah. um <laughs> yeah get to work <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um the, the, the giant kaiju has a hot sister now right <laughs> <laughs> um but jd is um very much like jean Marc. And that he's a super nice guy who wants to do nothing but help out. He's already given me permission to use G-Fantis in any stories I want to use outside of G-Fan. So that's cool. I'm sure for a movie we'd have to do some copyright checking and things, though. Um, you know, just to make sure everybody's lawyers are satisfied. But yeah, it's a definite possibility you could see um, G-Fantis take on Atomic Rex. And if um, things fall through with um, Universal, because it's, it's always you know, a chance many movies get on the track and then don't make it there. But um, they came to me. I didn't go to them. So I feel like that's got to be a good sign, you know. Uh, JD works with Dojo Studios, who does um, kaiju films. I did a kaiju film, Godzilla Battle Royal, which is really kind of a fun movie you can watch on YouTube. It's like an hour and a half. And it's got basically every Godzilla monster you can shake a stick at, including G-Fantis. Um, it's just that the guys couldn't make any money off it, so it's a free film that they put out there. Um, done in, like, the 60s type with Pseudimation. But they'd be interested in doing something with that, too, down the line if, um, you know, the big Universal thing doesn't work out. Or the HBO thing, as could be the case, too. I'll find out soon. Well, I'm glad you're getting these done faster than the fan film uh, Godzilla vs. the Wolfman, which we're still hoping to see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, one more little spoiler, then. The um, G-Fantis story involving my characters, The Rocks, is specifically called um, G-Fantis versus Legendary Beast Wolfman um, in the Shadow of the Rock. Because, yeah, I want to see that film, Godzilla versus Wolfman, for goodness sake. But um, since it looks like it's taking forever, I thought, well, the idea of Operation Rock was that we used cryptids that were enlarged. I took the um, Beast of Bray Road. Um, have you guys seen anything on that? It's supposed to be like a werewolf-type creature mm-hmm. out in Ohio, I think. And um, I purposely didn't use him in my novel to do a story with G-Fantas so I could get sort of like a Godzilla versus Giant Wolfman story of my own done. Any chance of pitting him against uh, basically Atomic Rex in the future? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, because uh, one neat thing about using mythological creatures or cryptids, um, which I've done a lot of, is that a people know them, so it's not like I have to make up you know all kinds of new monsters to get people interested in, and um, b they're not copyrighted, so you can use them wherever. I could certainly have a giant werewolf appear in um, Atomic Rex as well, so that's a definite possibility uh, for the future. If you don't mind doing a, a cool and relevant spoof one day, Matt, you really should create a monster where a, a lawyer from one of these um, film companies, like maybe Toho, is mutated into a giant monster. Every <laughs> kaiju that resembles any monster that they film and have under copyright. Yeah, I'm just getting a first taste of dealing with lawyers, and uh, they're definitely odd people, to say the least, as far as copyrights go and such, um, with the potential movie in the works. So, Legal well, Fantas. How, how does that sound, guys? Legal Fantas. Legal Fantas. <laughs> well, on that, on that note, I'm afraid we have to wrap up. Um, I will say uh, I'm looking forward to seeing Sharknado versus uh, Atomic Rex. Hopefully, <laughs> in the future. Um, uh, before before we let you go, Matt, um, any social media you want to plug? Yeah, you guys can uh, follow me on Facebook. I have um, Matthew Denyon on Facebook is my author page. Of course, you can find me at Matt Denyon too. It's perfectly fine. I also um, have a web page uh, uh and That's M A T T H E W D E N N I O N. So please look for all my stuff there. I put all my G-Fan work there, all my Black Coat work there, and all my original novels there, too. All right, cool. And uh, thank you. Thank you for coming on our show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, it guys. It was a blast. And if Ivan hadn't uh, been disconnected from us again, I'm sure he would also be saying okay. <laughs> he's had some technical difficulties today himself. Um, so thank you again for being on the show. And we're going to go to commercial, and we will be right back. All right. Thanks, guys. Well, that's about all the time we've got for tonight. Uh, Join us next week when we'll be talking with author Nicole Petit. Uh, Before we end, I want to thank our sponsors, Jeff Oresti, who once more has come to our rescue to keep the show going through uh, his crowdfunding contribution. And Heinzler Beer, the choice for those covering up uh, alien conspiracies or uh, anytime you want a generic beer, basically, in in any scenario in in the background. Heinzler is the choice. Uh, and a special thanks to Tiny White and the Deadites for our show's theme music. Thanks to all who listened. Remember to subscribe to and rate our show on iTunes. And as always, everything happens somewhere. Good night.